Welcome to Trinity Radio. I'm Braxton Hunter, and on this episode, we're going to be taking a look at a possible mathematical inconsistency as it relates to the children of Leah and Rachel in Genesis chapter 29. Now, if you just clicked on this because of the subject, you should know that this is part of an ongoing series through the book of Genesis. And you can find the audio of that series at uh, braxtonhunter.com slash verse by verse or by going to braxtonhunter.com and clicking on the verse by verse tab. Or you can find them in a playlist on the YouTube channel at youtube.com slash braxtonhunter. But uh, I haven't contributed to this series in a long time. And part of what I want to do is complete this series that is a verse by verse where we go off on every possible discussion topic or theological issue or historical issue um, that we can that we can in these passages of Scripture through the book of Genesis. Also, what we're going to do is look at anything that is of apologetics significance. So if you would like to begin that series, I encourage you to go back and start from the beginning, but I'm glad that you found it. What I want for this channel is for people that are interested in the Bible and theology, but not as interested in apologetics to get interested in apologetics. But I also want apologetics geeks to get interested in the Bible as well. And so hopefully this channel can serve both of those and we need to get back to doing that. So with that, we are currently in Genesis chapter 29, and we're going to begin by looking at this interesting story of where Jacob meets his wives. Specifically, this begins with his meeting um, Rachel. If you want the backstory that comes before this, again, go check out the previous videos or pieces of audio in this series. Uh, Genesis chapter 29 and verse 1 reads, Then Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the sons of the east. He looked and saw a well in the field, and behold, three flocks of sheep were lying there beside it. For from that well they watered the flocks. Now the stone on the mouth of the well was large. When all the flocks were gathered there, they would then roll the stone from the mouth of the well and water the sheep and put the stone back in its place on the mouth of the well. Now, there are some obvious reasons why people in this period of history would put a large stone over a well. One of the most obvious things that might spring to your mind is, well, to stop water evaporation. Uh, That's an important piece of this. But according to the IVP Bible background commentary, uh, of which John Walton is a contributor, it reads, "Um, The stone served a double function as a guard against contamination or poisoning of the well and as a social control mechanism, preventing any of the herdsmen in the area from drawing more water than was their right. Apparently, water was scarce in this open country, and thus the right to use the well was a jealously guarded one. Bedouin herders seldom wished to even divulge the location of wells within their territory, so this degree of security is not out of place. The stone may even have served to disguise the location of the well from the casual passerby. Wells of this time were not surrounded by protective walls, so the stone would also have prevented animals or people from inadvertently stumbling into it. Now, uh, this is all pretty important because we're going to read a passage of Scripture that that historical background might help inform. Now, if you're getting into a study of the Old or the New Testament, the IVP, Bible Background Commentary of the Old and of the New Testament, two separate volumes, are fantastic. It's a commentary book that instead of giving you pastoral points or theological points, 
it talks about the socio-cultural setting in which these events took place. And so as we just read, it will explain things like what's with this big stone over this well. So I encourage everyone to have those in their library. They're fascinating. Verse four says, Jacob said to them, my brothers, where are you from? And they said, we are from Haran. He said to them, do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? And they said, we know him. And he said to them, is it well with him? And they said, it is well. And here is Rachel, his daughter, coming with the sheep. He said, behold, it is still high day. It is not time for the livestock to be gathered. Water the sheep and go pasture them. But they said, we cannot until all the flocks are gathered. And they roll the stone from the mouth of the well, and then we water the sheep. Um, So now we're going to get to Rachel in just a moment. But you see, these uh, shepherds in the area... One might say, and I have heard commentators say this, well, these guys are just being lazy. They could move the stone and they could water the sheep, but they're going to wait till all the other shepherds in the area get there and then they'll just do it all together. Well, maybe, but understanding the historical background that we got from the IVP Bible background commentary, we understand that there could have been some red tape, so to speak, around this. I mean, in the sense that uh, we're concerned about people taking water who the water doesn't belong to, making sure we're taking water at the right time, that the right people are getting the water and all those kind of things. And so as a result, it could be that this red tape has kind of gummed up the situation where if everybody was just trusting everybody else, we could just go ahead and water the sheep and move on. But now we aren't so sure exactly how to handle this. So just so that everything is clear, we just wait till everyone is here before we water our flocks. Um, So apparently red tape can cause problems even in the ancient world. Uh, One might say, well, no, another possible explanation is that it takes a lot of men to move this stone. We don't exactly have a picture in our minds of how big this stone is. But that doesn't seem likely because Jacob moves the stone later on. So it really does seem like that the problem is that it could be laziness on the part of these guys, or it could be that we just don't want to ruffle any feathers. We just don't move the rock till everybody's here. Something like that. Uh, Verse 9, while he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep for she was a shepherdess. Now that's kind of interesting, right? A female shepherd? Well, again, the IVP background commentary tells us, while it is not uncommon today for women and small children to herd Bedouin flocks, in antiquity, women would have done so only when the household had no sons. It was a dangerous practice since they might be molested, but it was also a way of attracting a husband. So think about this. This isn't actually too far removed from our period of history today. While we in our culture, in the Western world at least, aren't out, you know, taking sheep around and, and, and handling the flocks, women do sometimes feel uncomfortable or unsafe being out at night. I don't think that's a sexist thing to say. In fact, that's something that uh, people that are interested in uh, sexual equality point out a lot. It almost seems like there's some sort of a male privilege that we don't even realize in that most men can go into most reasonably safe cities at night or walk around out in a field at night or whatever and not feel at all unsafe. But a woman has to constantly be thinking about the fact that someone might overpower her or sexually harass her. And uh, so that's a that's a danger that, that even today women have to be concerned about. On the other hand, um, that's also a way that a woman might meet a husband. I mean, think about it. Think of the typical, whether there's morally anything good about this or not, if a woman goes to, say, a social place like... Uh, a restaurant or a bar, right? Say she goes to a bar. Um, she might be, it might be unsafe for her to go to a bar. <laughs> it might, for the reasons that we've already described. On the other hand, many women go to bars to try and socialize and meet people. So you see, or nightclubs or whatever. 
um, th- this this sort of thing could be a dangerous thing, but it also could be a way to meet your future husband. Well, likewise, a woman going out in the field alone to handle the flocks as a shepherdess, that could have been a dangerous thing for her. But at the same time, it might be how they meet their husband. So not entirely removed, but still very different in, in how it plays out. Verse 10 says, When Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob went up and rolled the stone from the mouth of the well and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. So see there, Jacob rolled the stone away. Maybe he was trying to impress Rachel. Who knows? Because we do know that he's very, very interested in Rachel. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and lifted his voice and wept. Jacob told Rachel that he was a relative of her father and that he was Rebekah's son, and she ran and told her father. Now, you shouldn't think of when it says here that in verse 11, he kissed Rachel. You shouldn't think of this as some passionate, romantic, running across a field toward each other sort of kiss. They've just met. Um, And kisses in much of the world today is just a natural greeting. Now, it does seem textually here that it's more than just a greeting. It seems to have some familial context. It's a way of communicating that I'm one of your people. Hey, um, I, I am, uh, I'm Rebecca's son, so we, we are family, and there's a kiss there. In fact, we see that happen with Laban when he kisses Jacob here in just a few minutes. There's a familial aspect to this. But she could have been freaked out by this, but I, I don't think that's what's going on here. I think that she recognizes this as um, a, a warm greeting that we are of the same tribe, we are of the same people. So, And we see that because she runs off to tell her father. Um, verse 13 says, So when Laban heard the news of Jacob, his sister's son, he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him into his house. Then he related to Laban all these things. Laban said to him, Surely you are my bone and my flesh. And he stayed with him a month. Then Laban said to Jacob, Because you are my relative, should you therefore serve me for nothing? So apparently Jacob has been here for a month, and he's been helping out with the um, agricultural chores and things with the livestock, perhaps, and that sort of thing. Again, not too far removed from how things would be today. If you had a relative that came and stayed with you and they were there for as long as a month, um, at some point we wouldn't want them to be helping out because they're our guests, but at some point they might feel compelled to help out with the laundry or uh, perhaps mow the lawn or something like that or go buy some groceries. That would be normal even today. So certainly in a situation like this, Jake has been there for a while. He, he's able to do this sort of work, so now he's going to help out Um, with some of the chores and the the tasks of the daily activities there in Laban's household. But what it does show us is that there's no contract. There's been no agreement about what he would do. He's just kind of of been doing this because we're family and doing this out of the goodness of his heart. But if someone's going to stay there for an extended period of time, and it's looking like Jacob's not wanting to leave. Now, obviously, from previous um, chapters, we know that he has a motivation to be here and not back home. And also now that he's seen Rachel, oh, man, he's really got a motivation to be here now. Um, So if he's going to be here for an extended period of time, particularly if it's going to be years, we might as well draw up some sort of an agreement about the work that he's going to be doing uh, doing here. So. All right. uh, So let's uh, let's continue and see what that is. Tell me, what shall your wages be? Uh, Now, Laban had two daughters, verse 16 says the name of the older was Leah and the name of the younger was Rachel. And Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful of form and face. Now, this is odd. Obviously, we see here what's communicated clearly is that Jacob is totally into Rachel, um, not at, least, at the very least not as interested, if interested at all, in Leah. Um, but it says something weird here because it says that she's got weak eyes. Leah has weak eyes. Well, what in the world is meant by weak eyes? 
Well, um, it could it, it could mean that there was something medically wrong with her eyes. But this doesn't seem correct because we see that the context of this is that he we're seeing a comparison of beauty. Uh, it seems most natural to read this, that he's comparing the physical beauty of Leah and Rachel. And we're getting a, a comparison there. And we see that Leah's eyes are weak. Well, there actually is some precedence for this in the historical background of these things, that someone with weak eyes could be a way of indicating that they don't have as dark of eyes, which would have been un been unusual in that culture, to say the least. Maybe she has blue eyes or something like this. And this could this could look ghostly or, or something and d didn't look as uh, appealing or as attractive to people at that time. But in any case, something's up with her eyes. Now, um, it's possible that these women in the context they're in and in the period of history that, that they're living in, it could be that the only thing that's really visible is their eyes. That, that could be it. And their general physical form uh, under some sort of a robe or something like that. And so all he's really got to go on is eyes. And this girl has weak eyes. I'm not digging this girl's eyes. <laughs> so that could be what's going on here. But Rachel, she she's beautiful in uh, face and form. So uh, this gives us the indication that he can tell something about the curves of this woman. And he's, he's interested in her form. So um, that's one way of reading this. Another possible way of reading this is... Uh, again, back to the IVP background commentary, which suggests this is actually to say that Leah had weak eyes is actually a positive thing. Um, perhaps weak isn't really the, the most clear way to communicate what's going on in this passage. Maybe um, it should be delicate or something like that or fragile so that we get the impression that she has very feminine, uh, soft uh, eyes or something. In such a case, what this passage would be communicating is that Leah has these very beautiful eyes um, but uh, Rachel's beauty in face and form far surpasses even that of Leah. So that's a possibility. But what is clear through this is that he's totally into Rachel and not so much, if at all, into Leah. In fact, we get that in the very next verse. Uh, verse 18 says, Now Jacob loved Rachel. So he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. So Leah's the older daughter. Rachel's the younger daughter. He says, I'll serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, it is better that I give her to you than to give her to another man. I mean, you know, he's family. He's in the extended family. So stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of his love for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife, for my time is completed that I may go into her. Laban gathered all the men of the place and made a feast. Now, in the evening, he took his daughter Leah and brought her to him, and Jacob went in to her. So, if you know the story already, you know that what's happened is Laban has ensured that the marriage is consummated with Leah and not with Rachel. This is a deception toward Jacob. Jacob's been tricked and deceived here, and we're going to talk more about that in just a little while. But this is a very uh, important part of the story. Why is this the case? Why would you want to trick Jacob in this way. Uh, why couldn't Leah just marry somebody else? Well, partly because it was important to marry off the firstborn child. Uh, and this, I actually have a commentary in my Logos Bible software from 1870-something. I think 1871, this commentary was written. And at least at the time that commentary was written, the persons writing it wanted to make it clear that in Eastern countries, even in that day, so in 1871, it was still true, um, I don't know to what extent this is happening now, but in 1871, if you had an older daughter, 
that that was unattractive, that in her face she was unattractive, then you might just have her wear a veil over her face uh, all the way through the courting process and all the way through the marriage until you were actually married because then this guy finds out that she's not that attractive and we've got to marry off this firstborn daughter. Well, why, marry, why is it important to marry the firstborn daughter off first? Well, there are a couple of reasons. One, this is an honor-shame society. So, uh, in fact, what you get throughout the Bible is an honor-shame culture. So honor and shame within your corporate group and for individuals is very, very important. This is why um, even in New Testament times in the, in, in the Palestinian context there, well, in Romans it would be uh, the, the Roman context, but the, the, it was important uh, that he talked about shame quite a bit and honor. So in Romans we have, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, we can even get the force of that from our context. Yeah, I don't want to be ashamed of the gospel. But there's actually more going on there because what Paul wishes to communicate is um, you are in, you, you're not in the in-group with the Jews, and you're uh, talking to the early Christians, and you're not in the in-group with the Gentiles. Um, you, you are on the outs, like literally speaking, with both of those groups. You don't have honor, in other words, with the Jews, and you don't have honor with uh, the Gentiles. So you are dishonored. And this was devastating for people in this culture and could affect every aspect of their lives. So what Paul wants to communicate is, yes, it's true, you're shamed in the eyes of the Jews and shamed in the eyes of the Gentiles and of the Romans, but you are not shamed in the one true God. And for that reason, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because I have honor in the eyes and because of the person who is the person of my salvation, the Lord Jesus Christ. So this honor-shame context is very, very important. And um, if you think about uh, Jesus interacting with the Pharisees, this was an honor-shame. This is something that happens in honor-shame cultures is an honor-shame battle of sorts, battle of wits, this debating sort of thing. Um, where the Pharisees would challenge Jesus with a question that he's not supposed to be able to answer. This, in an honor-shame culture, is called challenge and repost. And the idea is there's a crowd listening, and whoever can't answer, or if the person challenged can't answer, well, then they're going to receive shame, and the person who asked the question will receive honor. Uh, but if the person who's asked a question can best or give a really incredible answer, um, then they, they have increased in honor in the eyes of the community. And of course, Jesus always gives the best answer in all of these uh, situations and interestingly, turns things many times back around on his questioners with a question, a challenge to them as well that they cannot answer. So Jesus is the most honorable of all in the challenge and repost. So this gives you a taste of what an honor-shame culture might be a little bit like. And so when we look at the honor-shame culture of Rachel and Leah, it's important that the older daughter marry off first for honor reasons. And it was important that she be able to have children. That's why barrenness and all these kind of things are so tied up into the worth of a woman in the ancient world, as we see also in the Bible. So that's a part of this. Also, there's a financial side to this thing where uh, you didn't want your daughter to be a spinster hanging around the house uh, for the rest of her life. You want her to go out and become a woman and have this coming of age sort of situation and become a part of an independent family. And that will, again, increase your honor. It will be financially helpful. And there's all kinds of benefits to that. So this is why it's important for uh, Leah to be married off first. And so uh, Jacob is tricked by um, Jacob is tricked by Laban. Now, uh, these this woman was apparently completely covered. Uh, 
uh, Leah was obviously completely covered, perhaps both women, if Rachel was present, because Jacob doesn't know. Uh, you might well read this story and think, well, how is this even possible that he's so in love with Rachel? And yet he takes Leah back to the house. He's married to Leah now. He takes her back to the house or the tent or whatever. And he has intercourse with her, not realizing it. How, how is all this possible? Well, it's actually not that strange. There's several, I mean, television programs make, uh, make use of this quite often that if someone is inebriated or something like that, they may not realize who they went to bed with. So we're already aware of this in our culture today. There's nothing really all that crazy about the concept that this could happen. And uh, it could be that what's a part of a feast like this that Laban has put on is that there is alcohol present. So perhaps Jacob was in some sense intoxicated. Uh, but then on top of that, remember, uh, the, it would not have been, I don't, I don't see any reason to think it would have been unusual to think that a, a bride like this would be wearing a veil that might cover her. You're going back with a potentially intoxicated man to a tent that is low lit. It's not like we have LED lights in every room. And so this whole thing is conceivable. This could happen. The Jacob doesn't realize until the morning what exactly has been done to him. <laughs> So verse 24, Laban also gave his maid Zilpah to his daughter Leah as a maid. Now, it would have been normal to give, uh, just like it is today, to give a wedding gift, but to give for the family to give a special wedding gift uh, to, to their daughter as a part of her marriage process. And uh, one thing that would have been a great wedding gift, and we shouldn't think about people as gifts, right? But one thing that would have been a great arrangement, we could say, is for your daughter to have a handmaiden. And this would have been a wonderful thing because... For one thing, she's this is a coming of age situation for her. She's now no longer a um, a part, just a part of her father's household. She now is a part of her own household with her own handmaiden. She is a woman in the truest sense in this sociocultural context, and also this handmaiden could help out around the house and do a lot of things to, to help out that way. So it would be a great uh, it would be a great help to her as well. So, um, so this is the reason for the giving of a handmaiden. And we'll see that Rachel has a maid as well. But these maids uh, are going to be very, very important of Zilpah and Bilhah. Uh, by the way, if, you have, if, you're, if, if you're expecting a daughter, perhaps you can consider these names Zilpah or Bilhah. Uh, but these women are going to be important because they're going to give birth to some of the sons of Jacob. Verse 25, so it came about in the morning that, behold, it was Leah, and he said to Laban, what is this you have done to me? Was it not for Rachel that I served with you? Why then have you deceived me? But Laban said, it is not the practice in our place to marry off the younger before the firstborn. Complete the week of this one, and we will give you the other also for the service which you shall serve with me for another seven years. So he's, at least the way this is reading right now, and we're going to talk more about this in a moment. It looks like he's worked seven years waiting to get Rachel. He gets done with the seven years, and it's not Rachel, it's Leah, and now he's got a contract for another seven years to get the woman he really loves, Rachel, in a bigamist marriage relationship. Um, lots to discuss and dig into there in just a few moments. Um, Jacob did so and completed her week, and he gave him his daughter Rachel as wife. Laban also gave his maid Bilhah to his daughter Rachel as her maid. So Jacob went into Rachel also, and indeed he loved Rachel more than Leah. And he served with Laban for another seven years. So now we got a problem here that we've got to figure out, a couple of problems. And this could be the reason why I've titled this or, or put on the thumbnail something that indicates a possible inconsistency or Bible contradiction here. And if it is, it's an, it's an implicit contradiction, not an explicit one, because you kind of have to dig into the numbers to figure it out. So uh, 
we know that Jacob was with Laban in, in Laban's household for 20 years. And during that time, he has 11 sons and one daughter. Now, the question that you'll see why this is important in a moment is when did he start having children? It sounds like he didn't, he didn't get Leah until he'd been there seven years. The most wooden reading of this text seems to imply he didn't get Leah until he'd been there for seven years. So if he was going to be there for 20 years, seven years have gone by. We're now at 13. Let's see, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20. Yeah, he's been there for, he's going to be there for 20 years. So we're down to 13. He's only got 13 years left. And only now is he able to start having children with Leah, and as we're going to see, with Leah's handmaiden, Zilpah. So that's, you know, he's going to have to have 11 kids, and, or well, 12 kids, 11 sons and one daughter, during this 13-year period. But it actually gets a little bit more difficult than that. Um, because if he works seven years to get Rachel, that would put us, before he's able to have children with Rachel, at six years that he's got left on his twenty. Right. So after seven years, he gets Leah. Now we're now we've got 13 years left, seven more years. We're at six. And that's only now are we getting Rachel. But it actually gets tighter than that, uh, because for the last six years he was with Laban. He didn't have any kids. And now the reason that we know that is he had no kids when he was with Laban after Joseph and Joseph. After he after Joseph was born, he told Laban, he had fulfilled his obligation. Well, what was his obligation? 14 years. Um, and he says this in chapter 30, actually, verse 26, chapter 30, verse 26. And then we know he stayed six more years because we learn in chapter 31 in verse 38 that he was there for 20 years. Now, the weeks of years thing gets complicated here. That Sometimes, depending on your Bible translation, when it talks about fulfill her week, this means a week of years, like seven years. Um, now, the weeks of years thing gets complicated here. It could be that a literal seven days after he married Leah, Laban gave Jacob Rachel. Like, so he worked seven years, got Leah, and then he complains, and that Laban says, all right, fine, um, you can, I'll just go ahead and you can marry Rachel now. And it was literally seven days later. Um, but then you're going to work off this seven years for me. Uh, on the back end, but I'm going to go ahead and let you marry Rachel. Now you'll be married to both women basically at once, uh, all at once, a week apart um, on the promise that you'd fulfill her week of years so that he basically got both wives at essentially the same time. However, there's another problem, namely that when they left and came into the land, when they leave Laban, stories about some of the children indicate that they were of marrying age. But the ol- but on this theory, the oldest any of them could be is 13, not marrying age. So we got a problem. Now, what's a possible solution aside from that the Bible just got this wrong? There's a mathematical problem here. Well, one solution, and the only one of which I'm aware, would be to say that verse 20 is a summary statement of what happened after the marriage. So that he married these women, but then worked off the agreement. And in Rachel's case, it seemed like only a few days because of his love for her. So that go back up to verse 20 and what verse 20 says is, so Jacob served seven years for Rachel and they seemed to him, but a few days because of his love for her. So on this theory, basically what you'd have is you'd have, um, you'd have Jacob marrying both women basically at the same time. And then they would, and then he just worked 14 years to, to pay off the debt for both of them. 
Now, if that sounds odd to you or like I'm stretching, it's not entirely clean. I mean, it, when you're reading this, it certainly does seem to give the impression that he worked seven years, got one, worked seven years, got another one, and then was there for six years with no kids and then left. That, that's what it seems like it, it could be saying. However, there actually is something internal to the story that might give us an indication that the explanation that he married both of them upon first arriving uh, here would, is actually what happened. And that explanation or that indication would be his relationship to Laban. This is his mother's brother. And this is your uncle. It's not like you're just some guy. In fact, one of the reasons that Laban said, yeah, it'd be better for her to marry you than, than somebody else is because he's in the family. So there's a level of connection here. There's a level of trust and affection. <laughs> at least there was at the beginning of this situation, uh, if not later. And so uh, w why would he, why would Laban make him wait until seven years is up to marry her? Why not go ahead and let him marry uh, Leah and Rachel at all at once? I mean, what's the point? I'm going to be living here. We need to be having children. Children can actually, at a certain point, begin helping with the work of the household. So why wouldn't we go ahead and have children? Why, why wouldn't I go ahead and let you marry my daughters? Um, especially when we're talking about it in an age where we want to make sure that they're able to bear a, a large number of kids. So it seems like the most practical explanation would be that Laban would do this, that he'd say, yeah, go ahead and marry them both. But you're going to work off these these 14 years. That would also make sense of why he comes uh, why he comes to Laban and indicates that uh that he's worked off his obligation uh, with respect to these women. And then, of course, that might that might help to solve the mathematical problem here when we come into the land. Perhaps uh, perhaps we've had plenty of time to have all these kids. OK, so all of that is complicated, but I think there is a way to understand it that while it's still a little, it's still not it still doesn't read quite the way that, that make you know, it's there's still some it's not clean. There's not it's not like there's not a problem there. It's not that it's not still a bit confusing. But this would at least explain it in a way that seems plausible, I think, and is technically a textual possibility, as far as I can tell. So uh, there's that. Now, notice also that Jacob had been previously in his life the deceiver with his brother, right, and with his father, or with his father, I guess, primarily. And that was all well and good, but now he's been deceived by Laban, and, and now he's not going to stand for this. You know, it's fine when it was him, but now he's not going to stand for this deception. He wanted Rachel. He's going to get Rachel. Um, this deception being turned on its head, we can all learn from that. Sometimes things don't seem to be that big of a deal when it's us doing it to someone else for our gain. Or think about this. It could be very subtle. Have you ever had someone tell you something and say, please don't, don't say that anything about this to anyone else? I'm trusting you. Please don't even tell your best friend. Don't tell anyone because this is a real secret that I'm letting you in on. And you say, yeah, absolutely. I'm not going to tell. And, and then and then the, and then you go to someone and you say, listen, I, let me tell you what I know. But you can't tell anyone. This is a secret. And um, and, you know, it, it's fine when someone when, but then you, when you do that, to someone else, it's fine when they were telling you, you don't mind telling someone else. But you want to know that the person you're telling will, will really keep the secret. And if they don't, it's going to feel like there's been a slight against you because you trusted them. But of course, this first person in the chain had trusted you, right? So it's sometimes things that when we, when, when we wrong someone, it doesn't bother us as much, but then whenever they wrong us, it, it feels terrible, right? So um, this is what has happened in a certain sense with deception and with lying to Jacob. In fact, in the Bible Knowledge Commentary and Exposition of Scriptures uh, by Walvert and Zuck, 
They say Jacob had deceived his own brother and father and now was deceived by his mother's brother. 20 years, according to chapter 31, verse 38, of drudgery, affliction, and deception lay ahead. Through Laban, he received his own medicine of duplicity, but Jacob's tenacity shows that he counted these as minor setbacks. God took him, developed his character, turned the fruits of his deception into blessing, and built the promised seed, the nation of Israel. So um, this uh, we, we see here that, that uh, I'm not the only one to notice this. This deception is coming home to roost with Jacob. But like with anything, God is able to take the bad situations that we create for ourselves and take our situations where other people have wronged us, and he's able to redeem those and use those for some good. Now, what about this issue of bigamy and polygamy? Is, is that what God wanted? I mean, you know, um, many people today, many Christians today, especially in the West, want to say, it seems that the ideal of God was one man and one woman. That was the plan with Adam and Eve. Jesus references that. Paul references that. It seems like that was the ideal, but here it seems like God is perfectly fine with this bigamous relationship, not only just perfectly fine with it, but actually the children that come out of this become the 12 tribes of Israel. So, so this is how God is building his, his nation of people. So this seems like God's okay with this and maybe even wants this, but not so fast. If we take the position that polygamy was tolerated by God, but that it was never his perfect ideal for mankind, perhaps we could say Jacob should have never married Rachel. He should have been satisfied with Leah. When Isaac was deceived, he, he just said, well, that's the blessing that I, I gave that blessing. I, I'm not going to give another blessing. That's what God wanted. Um, when Isaac was deceived. So he just kind of went with it. Why didn't Jacob just say, okay, well, I was deceived like his father just, I was deceived, but Leah's my wife now. And I'm going to, I'm going to be satisfied with Leah. Perhaps he should have never married Rachel. And you might say, but that doesn't sound right. I mean, Rachel uh, is very important to uh, the birthings of the 12 tribes. But here's the thing. Could not God have brought all of those children out of Leah? Couldn't he have done it through this monogamous relationship? There's no restraint on God that he couldn't have done this, in fact, perhaps in a less dramatic way, just through Leah. It seems like that's a perfectly reasonable assessment. And we see some major problems that result from this polygamous relationship. In fact, let's go ahead and look at some of the indications that might be there that perhaps what God wanted all along was for Jacob to be happy with just Leah and not go after Rachel. For one thing, Leah was buried with the family where Rachel wasn't. Rachel died on a roadway. Um, so that, so that this is the Leah, Leah being buried in the family tomb, so to speak, or in the family burial place seems important. Leah gave him six sons and one daughter, but the six sons was half the sons that he got from all four. All four of the other women, all four women, all the other three women and herself, six were half of the 12 tribes that you're going to get. The other women just had two apiece, the, the two handmaidens and Rachel. Leah, uh, God opened her womb, the Bible tells us, and blessed her. Um, when Leah names her children, she refers to Yahweh. Now, you don't necessarily get this just reading it in the English, but she refers to Yahweh. Whereas Rachel, on the other hand, just uses a generic term for God and seems to name her children with reference to a, a sort of a jealous competition with her sister. Judah comes through Leah, which is the tribe from which the Messiah comes. 
So all of these things seem to be very, very important and, and seem to indicate maybe that what was intended all along was that these children would come through Leah alone and that Jacob should have just been satisfied with Leah. And this is important because sometimes when people want to uh, talk about the possibility that maybe uh, polygamous relationships are perfectly fine in God's eyes, they will point to the fact that the 12 tribes come out of these women. Um, but but don't, don't forget to notice that these 12 tribes also come out of handmaidens, and I don't think that any Christian I know today wants to say it's okay to have multiple wives and handmaidens. So um, just because we see something happening and God working in the midst of it doesn't mean it's the ideal. In fact, uh, in the New Bible Commentary 21st Century Edition by D.A. Carson and Gordon Winham, they say, God never intended bigamy to be practiced, for he gave Adam only one wife. And chapter 4, verse 19 through 24, gives a glimpse of how brutal bigamists can be. Here, however, we view the tragedy from the wives' side. Having been tricked into marrying Leah, Jacob never really loved her or her children. Indeed, he does not ever seem to have regarded her as his wife. But she was desperate for his affection, as the names she gave to each of the children indicate. Her deepest desire was that my husband will love me now. But her efforts to achieve this never worked. Rachel, on the other hand, was consumed with jealousy because Leah had succeeded in bearing children, whereas she remained childless. Jacob may have loved her, but what she wanted was a baby. She pleaded with him, give me children or I'll die. So you can see that this created just jealousy, um, insecurity, all kinds of major problems because of this um, bigamist and polygamist situation. Now, at this point, I think it would be important for us to take a look at the family tree of Jacob as it relates to these children and from where they come. If you're listening to this by audio, there is a video component, and I'm going to have it on the screen if you want to go check that out um, at uh, the YouTube channel, Braxton, uh, youtube.com slash Braxton Hunter, and go to the Genesis playlist. But um, here we see on the screen Jacob's family tree. So we see that Jacob... Um, had uh, relations with Leah, Bilhah, Zilpah. Those are the two handmaidens, Bilhah and Zilpah. And of course, Rachel. And now with Leah, you can see, look at all the children that Leah has. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Ishakar, Zebulun, and then the daughter, Dinah. With Bilhah, he has Dan and Naphtali. With Zilpah, Gad and Asher. And then with Rachel, Joseph and Benjamin. So this might be a helpful thing to come back to, to remember this whole thing and keep track of it. Um, that's, that's very important and can be helpful to keep all these things we're talking about straight. So there you go. Hopefully that was helpful. Verse 31, now the Lord saw that Leah was unloved and he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. Leah conceived and bore a son and named him Reuben. For she said, because the Lord has seen my affliction, surely now my husband will love me. Then she conceived again and bore a son and said, Because the Lord has heard that I am unloved, he has therefore given me this son also. So she named him Simeon. She conceived again and bore a son and said, Now this time my husband will become attached to me, because I have borne him three sons. Therefore he was named Levi. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, This time I will praise the Lord. Therefore she named him Judah. Then she stopped bearing. So we come to the end of this chapter, and obviously there's going to be more in the next chapter that will be important and interesting to the story, and I think we'll carry this forward. But in this chapter, what we've been able to see is the following. We see yet another example that polygamy or bigamy 
causes major problems of jealousy and insecurity and was not God's ideal. Um, and therefore, we see reasons to suspect that perhaps Jacob should have remained satisfied with Leah and not gone after Rachel. We see the birth of 11 of the 12 sons of Jacob and the birth of Dinah, his daughter. And we see the deception of Jacob, who had previously been a deceiver. And finally, a possible solution to what some people consider to be a mathematical inconsistency in the Bible. So I hope you've enjoyed this time that we have together, and we'll pick up with chapter 30 next time. And if you are not yet uh, listening to this as an audio version, it is available, again, at trinityradio.org or braxtonhunter.com. That takes you to the same place. You can click on the verse-by-verse there and download the audio for free. And if you are listening to the audio version and you'd like to see some of the video components, starting with this, all of the episodes are available on the YouTube channel, but starting with this video, there may be on-screen components that will help to enrich the experience. And you can get those by going to youtube.com slash Braxton Hunter and looking at the uh, Genesis series playlist. And with that, I've enjoyed this time that we've had together, and I'll see you next time.